Welcome to the Hot Stove Society show. We're thrilled to be here with you. Thank you for joining us. Whether you're in your garden or on the highway or listening in your podcast special place, exercising, whatever it is that you do while you hang out with us, we hope that uh, we bring some joy, two hours of joy to your uh, weekend food and beverage uh, routine. So uh, my name is Tom Douglas. I have a couple of restaurants that are open right now. Uh, Serious Takeout out in Ballard, 52nd and 14th Northwest, uh, along with uh, Serious Pie downtown. And of course, uh, we have combined Seatown, the Rub Shack and Etta's into one for the time being. Probably probably will be open as Etta's, my guess is sometime towards the uh, middle of the summer or so. We'll see it's a little hard to hire staff right now, so I, I'm not really sure. Yeah, no kidding. Uh, anyway, uh, I am joined by the chef in the chapeau, We Chef. We Chef, Thierry Rotiro here, the chef in the hat from Luc in Madison Valley. And uh, same, we're open. And uh, yes, it is hard to find people. And, um, you know, we're, we're definitely, the customer are definitely enthralled to see and to be in the restaurant. They're very excited, very happy. Uh, that's definitely helping push the uh, positiveness all forward and trying to get back on our wheels. So it is yeah. it is definitely a fun time. Um, it's exciting. Uh, and, and then we'll see what happened after the summer. Exactly. <laughs> During the summer. Exactly. I tried to go to uh, uh, Elliot's on the pier uh, two nights ago, Wednesday night I tried to go and I uh, was turned away at 7.30 at Elliot's with an hour wait down there on the waterfront. Oh. And then last night I tried to go to one of my favorite little haunts up on Greenwood um, at about 7 o'clock on Thursday night and was turned away with an hour wait. So people are definitely ready to get back in the restaurants and uh, make a make an evening of Absolutely. it. And kind of enjoy that social interaction. And, and we're thrilled about that. So uh, welcome back. That's what I got to say about that. All right. That's right. Um, let's see. We have so many things today, I can't even keep them all in my pea brain. Avocado season right now. I know everyone thinks that Super Bowl season is avocado season. That, that, that is when they sell the most avocados in, in, the, in the calendar years for Super Bowl. But uh, right season. now is the <laughs> season. So we're going to invite some uh, avocado folks on to talk to us about that. Jeremy Bunch and Debbie Dankus of uh, Shepherd's Grain are here to talk about growing re- wheat with regenerative soil practices. And I will say, uh, I've been spending more time at our farm, you know, once a week. My mother-in-law is ill. Jackie's over there more on her own. So I've been going over there. And the windstorms to come through our farm are unbelievable. And I'd, you know, she'd always said, oh, it's super windy tonight, blah, blah, blah. But then you get out there and you're sitting there and you watch the dust come across uh, the the uh, expanses of fields over there, the from the plowed fields, and and the dust storms are outrageous over there. And the, so one of the things we're talking about with the wheat is a, a no-till wheat practice, so that you get less blow on your uh, of your topsoil. Right. Uh, we're so gonna, the dirt stays the anchor. Yeah, where it exactly. Is. We're going to try and get into that a little bit. Grilling with Southeast Asian ingredients with Chef Annie Elmore. She's one of our presenters here at the Hot Stove. Mayonnaise, uh, Chef, uh, we're going to kind of debate whether it's worth the time or not. And I have probably a different view than you, uh, but uh, we, we'll find that out when our mayonnaise debate comes up. And where do you look for food in the news? Looking forward to that. I know. Where do you look for food in the news, Chef? You have a favorite Seattle place? Seattle Times first. Seattle Times. I go Seattle to the New Time York first. Times first, Every- yeah. And then New York Times second. Mm-hmm. I mean, both of those are my favorite to look into because they cover enough. I mean, just to read those two is already a yeah, know, that's it's a, a good lot. challenge. Yeah, 
And the one I think that is a um, surprise that people don't do enough of, it's a great food section, is the Washington Post. Uh, and our old, right. our old uh, reviewer here from the Seattle PI, Tom Sietzma, yeah. is still working yeah. at the Washington Post. So interesting. And, of course, uh, we're going to have our annual, our regular, not our annual, but our regular Food for Thought, Rub with Love, Tasty Trivia Challenge. And today we're going to be talking a little bit about some new recipes to do with the rubs. All right, Chef, we have... Um, we have a, uh, a minute to talk about our favorite taste of the week. I'll jump in first. So near my house, I mean, this happens, right? We all end up in places that are close to home because you don't want to drink and drive and you don't want to do, you know, you're, you're tired. It's, you're not going to go out of your way. Other, other nights you plan the night out. And so there's, um, there's a little place near my neighborhood, uh, in my neighborhood called the Thirsty Fish. It's kind of a classic old tavern bar. Uh, and then uh, they they actually have a nice little wine selection, and they have uh, surprisingly delicious food. Now, I'm not going to say it's uh, five-star, four-star, whatever it is, uh, but I am going to say that, like this last week, Jackie and I ran in there. We were both in that hangry mode, right? It had gotten to be about 8, 8.30. We hadn't eaten. We were both hungry, uh, and uh, I, we had ordered the steak frites. And it was really good. I don't know if it was weird. I was just starving. But, you know, I just thought, I think when you say it's unexpectedly good, it sounds like a put down to the place. And I don't mean it that way at all. I just think it's a nice thing to have in your neighborhood, a good steak free, like this little fallback thing. And so the Thirsty Fish is my taste of the week. Extra crispy on the crinkle fries is all I got to say about that. Extra crispy. (laughs) (laughs) All right, Chef, you got a minute and Uh, a half. Spring onions are in the... um Walla Walla's like, and um, this week I did some uh, marinated uh, Walla Walla's cut in half, a little bit of olive oil, and rub. And guess what rub we use? We use the veggie rub from oh, Tom nice. Douglas. Yeah, Pamela's yeah. very own. And, You're brilliant. Um, so, of course, that wasn't good enough for me, so I had to put oh, a little wait, turmeric in whoa, there. And that actually, There's a that shot. Actually, that actually, <laughs> no, I was just kidding. <clears throat> no, but I just thought, Oh, let me add some turmeric to this. It was fantastic. Roasted 400 degrees on the sheet pan. Uh, you know, it's got a little oil on it, so it's it's not going to burn or whatever. <clears throat> it did a nice roasting on those babies. And when they came out about 30 minutes later, you leave them on the counter and you c- I cover them at the last minute. So then they can steam on the middle and everything is totally tender with a crispy skin on the outside. Oop. Um, yes, grilled onion. It's very good for you, very healthy, and um, the rub doesn't hurt either. That's so right. One way to use your veg rub. You know, in our household, anything that makes you toot it must be good for you. That's what we say about um, gassy foods. Go. If it makes you toot, it's good for you. Um, but grilled onion, yeah, it's grilled a good, onions, it's a good grilled dish. Grilled walla walla sweets. Days. All right, we got to run to our next yeah. segment. Coming up, it's the California avocado season. We're going to talk a little bit about that on Cairo Radio. It's the Hot Stove Society Show, 97.3 FM. Welcome back to the Hot Stove Society Show on Cairo Radio. I'm Tom Douglas. And I'm Thierry Rotiro, the chef in the hat. And Thierry, we're going to talk about avocados because our producer is an avocado nut. And I think a lot of people don't realize that there are seasons for avocados. I mean, they grow all year long. And, of course, uh, when they're not hot and heavy in in California, they're coming out of Mexico or Honduras or wherever they come from, right? So uh, there's lots of different kinds and varieties. I personally am a fan of the Haas avocado, the H-A-A-S, Haas avocado. Yep. And then um, 
Pamela, why don't you tell us why this was important to you to have avocados on the show today? I know you have them in your house and eat them all the time. 24-7, but I want to move beyond avocado toast and have... Why, for God's sake? And have a regular diet of them because they are classified as one of the superfoods that are worth eating all the time uh, because they have limited amount of calories, over 20 vitamins, and all of the good fats. So that's why we want your chef inspiration to think about other ways to use them besides guacamole. Okay, so I'm going to argue with you on one thing, this the limited amount of calories thing. Now, well, not- I, they might be, <laughs> may, that may, might be good calories, but 50 grams, which is about two ounces of avocados, has 80, 80 calories. calories. Yeah, well, you can walk off 80 calories in well, a Well, I'm just saying, what is <laughs> two ounces of butter has about 80 calories. So as far as... But not the vitamins. But not the vitamins. Okay, that's fine. That's where I'll give in. But I love how she said it was low calories. She kind of slipped that in, thinking she wasn't going to be challenged on that. So, Chef... Um, oh, what, she, what, she, what she's saying is these are good calories to right, take. Right, I in. get it. Exactly. Okay, so let's, uh, let's take uh, Thank you, guacamole Jerry. off the table. Let's take avocado toast yeah. off the table. Give me some ways oh, that find you... find something to put on the toast that's really good. No, 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 you're, you're misunderstanding what I'm saying. It's like, give me some ways to you that you use avocado that aren't the classic ways. I will make a beautiful Dungeness crab salad because Dungeness are coming in season. Um, a nice cold Dungeness crab salad with some avocados. Um, citrus, obviously, grapefruit goes really well with avocado. So pink grapefruit, avocado, crab, and chopped shallots or fried shallots would be nice on top of that salad that would be bringing a nice little crunch and sweetness you're finally coming around to fried shallots aren't you chef (laughs) i've always loved them Uh they're just a pain in the neck yeah (laughs) i like to make them but they are they're definitely uh it's uh, the problem with with uh fried shallots is it's really hard to get away from it so once you make a big bowl of it because you don't make just shallots for one you make shallots for two three meals and they usually only last one meal. Mm-hmm, That's the problem with snack food. shallots. All right, back to avocados. Delicious. Avocado with crab. So avocado with crab. And then um, I like to make, you could make an avocado soup this, this, uh, in the spring. You don't do that every day, but you could do a nice little cold avocado soup, finish with a nice fresh cheese with creme fraiche. Obviously, those are added uh, calories. Um, then you put on top. So like and a, that's a uh, very um, like a gazpacho, so avocado, gazpacho yeah, kind avocado, of avocado, tomato if you have any that are fresh and beautiful, uh, lemon or lime. I'm a big fan of lime and avocado as well. That's good. Cilantro, and so you put the whole thing into a, a blender, and you put a little bit of vegetable stock or white wine, a good a good dry white wine in there, and uh, you'll have a beautiful avocado soup. It's like an avocado puree soup. And the the addition to that is you need to bring texture, so you need to bring crust, some nice, beautiful um, olive oil fried crouton, um, you know, fresh diced baguette, basically, and um, some cheese and some creme fraiche. And then you have a wonderful avocado soup on your hand. And it's great with, you can do sauteed shrimp. You can add, um, you know, if you have some shrimp, you can do some nice prawn saute and put that into the soup at the last minute. That's also a delicious garnish. 
Now, Chef, would you consider uh, garnishing that soup, say, with avocado oil? I mean, do you like to layer those flavors? Or does avocado oil, in my mind, doesn't have enough real flavor to distinguish itself? It's it's a nice way to utilize the product, but it's not a strong addition. It's not like you're going to notice it very much, especially if your bowl is already full of avocado. Right. So, Pamela, you heard Chef talk about a couple of things there, and I think he's frozen up there, Sean. So uh, would you try making that soup? Oh, absolutely. Wonderful lusciousness, and I love that he added the crunchy element. That would make it perfect. That would make it perfect. Yeah. So my way that and I a make... a good garnish, uh, sorry, a good garnish is the bronze fennel I got in my garden. Oh, that super, would be beautiful. Super delicious. Mm-hmm. Take all the fronds and, and break it down into your soup, because every time you take a bite, you get a little bit of that sweetness from the bronze fennel, slash a little bit of anise. Oh, that stuff is delicious with mm-hmm. that. Sounds like fun. You know, I don't think people put avocados on the grill enough, and I think that it's something Whoa. that is interesting uh-huh. because uh, they really suck up the smoke flavor. You don't need to put them on for long, right. which is good because you don't want to melt them on the grill. I mean, an avocado on a grill, right. if you let it sit there, will be a little bit like cooking foie gras you know, on the stove. It'll just melt away right. into, into yeah. nothingness. Uh, <laughs> but uh, what I love when I do that, it's like if I'm making a chili, or if I'm making something of, of like that where I want to have an avocado as a chopped avocado garnish, then that little smoky grilled avocado is nice. If you're making avocado or have your grill on and then you you love avocado toast, uh, but that smoky avocado toast might be interesting for you. I don't know if you like next that level. smoke kind of. Oh, yeah. That yeah. would take it to next See, Jackie level. would not like that. My wife would not like no. that. So, uh, but, I, I think uh, it would be a great addition diced into a salad. If you make a nice, beautiful spring greens uh, radishes, fennel, all that shaved, you know, make a nice little dressing and then finish with your diced grilled avocado on top. Mm-hmm. That would be delicious. That would be delicious. On enchiladas, you know, if, if uh, yep. since we took guacamole off, uh, off the counter here today to think of new ways to use uh, avocado, uh, uh, an avocado a sauce like you talked about, uh, Carmen, one of our coworkers mm-hmm. over at the Prosser Farm, she takes her avocados, puts them in a blender with lime juice, and some hot sauce and makes this uh, avocado foam. So if you're making, say, chick- chicken enchiladas with a beautiful red sauce and then you, or even a green sauce and you put the avocado foam over top, um, mm, yeah. which we call it foam. She would never call it foam. No, no not, not even a chance. Uh, but uh, that would be a delicious way to use them. And, and now um, the California Avocado website um, is promoting ways to bake with it with the avocados as a shortening substitute. Really? So they've got a delicious, I should have made them for you, vanilla cupcakes using the avocado. But the big rage is chocolate pudding uh, with avocado as the base. As the fat. As the fat. Huh, interesting. Well, it's, you know, wow. we get caught up in the ways that we like them. And, of course, right. uh, there isn't much better than avocado, lime juice, and salt. Uh, Agreed. Like, it's, it's, talk mean, about a superfood. Yeah. There's nothing talking much about better. delicious. Yeah, exactly. And, well, in ceviche, too, the avocado addition, that yeah. would really round that out. But you'd, you want to put it in at the end. To- just at yeah. the last minute. Just chop it in at the end. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, because even the 30 minutes that ceviche often is all it takes for the lime juice or lemon juice, citrus to do its work. Right. I mean, Peru, the salt to do its work. Um, yeah. You, that's still too long to put the avocado in at the beginning, I um, think. Just a topper. Just a topper. Or, yeah. you know, just a t- toss it in at the end. All right. Up next, we're going to talk to Jeremy Bunch and Debbie Danicus of uh, Shepherd's Grain. 
about uh, why their grain is superior and the farming practice that it takes to uh, help our agriculture at the same time. Uh, this is Tom Douglas and the chef in the chapeau, Terry Rotaro on Cairo Radio. It's the Hot Stove Society Show, 97.3 FM. Welcome back to the Hot Stove Society Show. I'm Chef Tom Douglas. And I'm Terry Rotaro, the chef in the hat. And Terry, we're going to talk to some folks uh, that are trying to do good and make good food here in the great Northwest, both uh, Idaho, Oregon, Washington. We've got some Montana farmers in there, too. Yes. Uh, super fun. Uh, we have Jeremy Bunch and Debbie Danicus here from the Shepherd's Grain Corporation. How about that? I got the name right Great. first time. Uh, anyway, uh, Jeremy is the COO of Shepherd's Grains, and Debbie is the marketing director. And you happen to be right here in the studio. Jeremy, welcome to the show online here. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here this morning. Absolutely. As uh, I was telling people in the opening of the show about some of the windstorms we've had already this spring out at our farm in Prosser, and the dust storms are amazing. And one of the cool things that's been happening with uh, uh, wheat farming is the whole no-till farming organization. And I, I love that. And we've been talking about it, I want to say, for 15 years now, maybe 20, uh, about this practice has had started and cutting down on losing so much topsoil over in our, in our wheat plains. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about that process, how it got started, and uh, why it makes the grain better? Yeah, you bet. So basically, you know, when, when Eastern Washington, North Idaho, got settled in the 1870s, 1880s, um, basically by 1910, we had plowed every imaginable acre that, that, that could be farmed. You know, some of it silly, but it was it was plowed and planted to wheat. And it's a, it's a great wheat production region, but year after year, farmers kept on tilling the ground, disturbing it, taking a plow and just turning over that soil and exposing it to the elements, to rain, uh, to snow melt, to wind, that that carries the topsoil off of the fields and into the watersheds of the Snake River or the Columbia River. And it's really astronomical, the amount of millions of tons of topsoil that we've lost out of the farming region of eastern Washington, like you know, 20 to 30 tons uh, of topsoil loss per acre per year. Amazing. And so, wow. you know, our, our farmers have, uh, you know, 20, 30, 40 years ago decided enough is enough. We need to stop the bleeding. This is, this is a perfect picture of unsustainability, losing all this productive topsoil. And so they invested in the right kind of farming implement to be able to not disturb the soil at all, just, um, kind of, if you can imagine a wheat crop being harvested and, and what's left behind is it, the remaining straw residue, the stems from the previous wheat crop. And so what they do is, is they come in with like a, a pizza slicer, one of those round shark wheels mm-hmm. slicing the pizza. And they do that through that straw and just deposit the next crop seeds right into that. And so the, the straw and the roots from the previous crop anchor the soil and protect it from being eroded away through rain or, or wind. And so wow, go go cool. back even a hundred years before that, was this all grasslands? These are all the part of the Great Plains and Buffalo land? Or is, where did this, this uh, these lands begin their time? Pretty much grasslands. I don't know that we have very, very much buffalo in this region of eastern Washington, but uh, the Palouse native habitat was, was very fragile. It was, it was a mix of 
of grasses, but it, but it had a lot of flowers in it, in it too, a lot of broadleaf flowers. And, and in this time of year, um, it would have been absolutely beautiful. You would have looked out on the landscape and just seen camas folds, purple flowers growing, yellow flowers. Uh, it was really a diverse landscape. And like I said, when, when we settled here, we turned it into ag land. And what couldn't be farmed was quickly overgrazed by um, livestock that we put on it. And so we've, we've really transformed the region environmentally. And I would say that that's one of the things that our farmers are committed to is going back to the fundamentals of managing ecosystems in a way that um, is consistent with the climate and the regions that, that we live in. And, um, and, and no-till requires that kind of diversity. So in, in eastern Washington, we've largely been a monoculture of wheat, and um, and that's just not good for a, an ecosystem that is supposed to be diverse. And so our farmers recognize that we need to do the no-till to stop soil erosion, but we also need to get back to planting more flowers. So our farmers are doing that, whether it's peas or garbanzo beans or sunflowers, flaxseed. Um, we need more diversity of the landscape, and that's just better for the environment all the way around. So if if the wind wasn't part of the equation, would that still be a concern to not turn the ground? Because I've always heard that you turn the ground so you can take the topsoil and put it back in and it re-nourish the dirt. Is this wrong or is this a fairy tale? No, that, that, that's not exactly how it works. So what makes soil really healthy and, and vibrant, fertile topsoil, is really carbon. Carbon is the basic building block of, of healthy soil. Um, and so what happens is when you flip the soil over, when you expose it to the elements, you release the carbon that's in, in the soil, and it goes into the atmosphere as CO2. When you, when you don't till the soil and, and don't disturb it, there's, there's the roots that are left in the soil, which are largely made up of carbon, and there's all of this soil biology, all of this bacteria and fungi and earthworms and stuff that live in there, and they're largely made up of carbon, and they, they poop and they die, and, and they keep that carbon in the soil. Um, but when you disturb the soil, you destroy their habitat, they leave, they're not able to provide um, natural fertilizers to the plant. Um, and you lose that carbon. And this is really important, actually, as we listen to climate change and the issues surrounding that. Um, you hear a lot of talk about carbon sequestration, carbon capture. We want to bring CO2 out of the atmosphere and, and capture it somehow here. And scientists recognize that farmers doing no-till play a huge role in handling those issues because they're able to store the carbon in the soil It makes for healthier soils, and it keeps CO2 out of the atmosphere. So it, it's really a um, a farming practice that's, that's part of the solution to the, the climate problems that we're seeing. Hmm. That's super interesting because I was raised on a farm where every year you would till the ground and then you would rotate the crop. Does your system allow to keep the crop in the same place longer since you're not tilling and not getting rid of carbon and 
knowing that that allows to keep the same crop in the ground longer. So no-till absolutely requires crop rotation and, and like I said earlier, not maintaining a monoculture of wheat. We've really got to, right. you know, um, rotate to some of those flowering crops, for instance, or other grasses like oats or barley. Um, that's absolutely required. Otherwise, the complete production system of no-till falls apart. And, and there's mm-hmm. been farmers that have tried to do a monoculture with no-till, and they faced really bad agricultural problems by doing that. Oh, it's, uh, oh. it's you know, some of these things fly in the face, but when you think about, you know, what's happening in our tundra these days with the, the big ice melt and the release of carbon throughout uh, the world as, as uh, we get lower and lower to sea level, it's, uh, it's, it's interesting times when it comes to carbon. And uh, we all kind of have some mis- misinformation going on, it seems to me, of how to kind of contain it. So uh, let's yeah. talk, uh, when we come back, we're going to uh, talk about the flower itself and maybe how this no-till actually improves the flower that we're getting for our breads. Uh, I've been uh, invited Jackie to come on for a minute, my wife to come on. She's been using your flowers, uh, Debbie, for uh, months now during the COVID lockdown. And I'd be curious uh, if how she feel, feels about the whole process. And Debbie, uh, we're going to find out how you're marketing this and how you're distinguishing yourself in the marketplace compared to, say, gold medal, AP flower. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, that's all when we come back here at, on the Hot Stove Society show, Cairo Radio, 97.3 FM. And we're back. It's the Hot Stove Society show on Cairo. We're in the middle of our grain dis- discussion uh, that's uh, Shepherd's Grains, as a matter of fact. Uh, we have Jeremy Bunch, COO. And, of course, we have Debbie Danicus here. She's the marketing director. And, Jeremy, we kind of left off with uh, the whole no-till thing, the rotation of crops, uh, uh, what you're doing to uh, help market some of the crops that uh, have to be in rotation uh, because of wheat farmers don't necessarily know how to sell um, chickpeas or garbanzo beans or, you know, don't know the marketplace. But... Um, so now, now we've uh, harvested, we've taken it, uh, we need to take it to market, and where does it go from here? It goes directly from the farmer's bin to the flour mill. So one of the things about Shepherd's Grain is we, I, we keep the identity of the, the farmer's wheat preserved all the way from their farm through the milling process to the, the bag of flour that it ends up in. Um, and, and what that really allows us to do is not just not just have that neat connection between consumers or end users and the farmers, but it really allows us to uh, finally control, micromanage the quality of the wheat. So all of our farmers plant uh, varieties of wheat that are just the premium of the crop quality-wise. We know they have excellent baking attributes. And, um, and so that really that's what I do is I just manage the quality of the wheat and the flour to make sure that it's, high quality and consistent. All right, Debbie, I guess now it's your turn. Debbie Danicus is here, marketing director. Now you've got this product uh, and some of it's available to the retail customer. Most of it, like us, we buy it for our pizza dough. Uh, How do you get this out and about and and where does it fit in the marketplace? Well, um, we have our all-purpose five-pound bag that is available for the consumer and how we market is, is you can actually buy it in various retail stores here in the Seattle market and Portland. So if you want to go do that, uh, some of those that are um, Whole Foods, Town & Country Market, Central Market, Hagen, you can go there and find the five-pound bag. 
And what's unique, as Jeremy had mentioned, it's on each bay you'll find a uh, date that it was milled. And you can put that date into our website, and it'll tell you which farmers actually grew. Oh, that is that so is cool. That is so cool. So that's called... Uh, Very cool. Tracing, you know, you can tra- track it back to the farmer. And really, I, we're the uniqueness of doing that. It's because we keep our wheat separate, and we don't put it in with all the other uh, wheat that's out there that goes into mills. We keep ours separate, so it's called identity preserved. Huh. So instead of all the commodity stuff like you might get with gold metal or, or something like that, you actually have uh, your own... I'm sure you're on grinding time. Right, we do. We work with a grain craft mill in Pendleton, and we take the, our wheat, and it's just separate, and so we're not mixed in with any other of that commodity wheat that's out there. Now, we at uh, Serious Pie use uh, uh, your high-gluten flour, right, which comes in, what, 50-pound sacks to us, and we've been using it for quite a long time. Yeah. Uh, and it's the opposite of what a lot of pizzerias do as far as uh, the type of the amount of gluten in flour. Uh, especially those uh, kind of southern Italian style pizzerias, uh, which use zero zero flour. Uh, tell me about uh, your all-purpose flour, which is what generally you find in the marketplace. What's so per- so different other than the origin of the product? Is there anything else? Does it have different protein levels? Uh, all of those things. Well, what makes it so significant, and the baker wants to use it, it's it's about the quality of it, mm-hmm. and the quality takes you back to the wheat varieties. But it's known for its consistency, texture, and this unique flavor. And I truly believe it's because of our no-till farming practices and the variety that our farmers are using the same varieties that makes it that superb uh, baking flour that you want to use. Mm-hmm. Uh, my wife, Jackie, is, uh, she couldn't come on. We were going to talk to her about her bread extravaganza this whole last year. I think it's part of my fifteen uh, COVID-15 pounds that I put on. Uh, but um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, she, has, she has flowers from all over the place, from Bob's Red Mill to King Arthur to uh, Shepherd's Grain to you, you, you name it. Uh, we've got flowers coming out of our ears at this point. Chef, you, you uh, tried your hand at some bread this uh, year. What did you find that worked best for you? What do you call it? The high gluten. Mm-hmm. That was a really good, uh, that's a good flour for bread. I think it's just basically, it's a bread to me. I call it the bread flour, but I, w- I was using that and I was mixing a little bit of wheat, uh, of, um, yeah, of uh, wheat to it, just regular wheat and getting some very crunchy and very uh, crusty bread. Mm-hmm. I, I love the crust on the bread, which is one of my favorite thing, obviously. The bull. When you make a bowl, you have this gorgeous crust, and nothing tastes better than a good slice of bread that's warm exactly, out of the oven. Exactly. Uh, <laughs> Jeremy, uh, anything else you want to add to uh, the thought process on why people should buy Shepherd's Grain? Absolutely. I, you know, I think you know you have the neat story about farmers choosing to, to farm in you know in environmentally friendly ways, but it, it goes it goes back to the quality. If you don't have the quality to back up the story. It's not going to go anywhere, and and we really are able to really micromanage. Um, it starts with the seed. Our farmers only grow varieties of wheat that have the best baking performance and and consistency. So you know, when bakers wake up at, at three o'clock in the morning, their recipe has to work, or they get angry. And so consistency is is probably the most important quality and so that's really what i strive for you know commodity flowers you get a consistent protein content and that's about the only quality attribute that they can control 
the producers of those flowers. But we're able to control consistency with protein, absorption, mixing time, just the dough formation is, is very consistent. So that's that's what we strive for. Yeah. I want to ask about the seed because seeds are the big conversation in agriculture now. And what is the source of the seed and do you generate any, do you do any seed saving? You hear a lot of awful stuff about Monsanto controlling the seed market. So where the heck do you get it? Well, there's a, there's a lot of um, seed dealers that, that sell the seed to our farmers. And, and you know, when you, when you talk about those issues of saving seed or Monsanto being sold, that, that all has to, that all revolves around GMO, like GMO corn or soybean. And there is, there is no GMO wheat on the market. So farmers have the freedom to save seed or plant what they want. Um, of course, we give them a short list of, of types of wheat that we will accept based on end use quality. But, um, but otherwise, farmers have a lot of freedom. With wheat seed. Pamela, if you've ever, um, and I'll say this to all of our listeners, if there's really one reason to, uh, to kind of uh, think about this more so than another, uh, is if you've ever had to pull over on I-90 and be in a dust storm and watch the beautiful topsoil of our, of our state just blow away um, and wait it out for hours at a time, um, the whole no-till thing is such an important reason to buy this flower. Absolutely, uh, And uh, I've seen it firsthand this spring over and over and over again, the dust storms of eastern Washington, and they seem like they're getting worse. And uh, I, I know we haven't had rain in months out at Prosser, at least any sort of measurable rain. And so that's as good a reason as any, I would say, no matter what the flavor tastes like. Debbie, you have a thought on that? Well, I just uh, wanted to say uh, when you do go to eastern Washington, you basically are in that dust bowl if you're you know, still tilling the land. And um, back to marketing here, that's what I love to do. Uh, Terry had mentioned uh, the high gluten that we do have, but the all-purpose mm-hmm. also can be used as a bread flour. Okay. And it's known for that as well. So I wanted to throw that in there, and you can get it, as I said, in various uh, retail stores. But you can go on to our website, shepherdsgrain.com, and you can go to our shop page, and you can buy our all-purpose flour. Perfect. Thank you both for uh, joining us today and, and talking a little bit more about one of our great Northwest uh, pioneer industries, Shepherd's Grain. Yep. Coming up in the next hour, it's Make Your Own Mayonnaise, or Should You? Our favorite spot for food in the news. Chef Annie Elmore is going to join us. She's a presenter here at the Hot Stove, and we're going to talk about Southeast Asian grilling. And lastly, we will challenge a listener to come up with a new use for one of our Rub With Love spice rubs. So you're listening to us uh, on Cairo Radio. It's the Hot Stove Society. It's time for hour number two of the Hot Stove Society radio show on Cairo Radio. My name is Tom Douglas. And I'm Thierry Rotorola, chef in the hat. We have so many cool things happening as we reopen from uh, the last uh, 15 months, uh, start to reopen our businesses and start to get people back in our houses and uh, start to rekindle uh, romances with some older employees that want to come back. You know, some have moved on and some have moved literally uh, with family around the country or with friends or to other towns. But there are some that, yeah, that's that actually, are trickling back, which that's is kind of nice. Uh, Tom, that's actually a very uh, good phenomenon that has happened. I, I have a lot of my employees who have moved out of state. Yeah. That's very interesting. 
Well, uh, after working with you, Chef, I don't know what to say. I mean, what's I don't know what their issues are. <laughs> yeah, of course. That's the part I wasn't figuring out. <laughs> exactly. Okay, <laughs> Chef, let's talk about mayonnaise. Uh, Julia Child was a big fan of mayonnaise. And uh, yep. I like mayonnaise. And Pamela loves mayonnaise. And um, one of my favorite stories to tell about Julia was the time that uh, I made her this beautiful whole Dungeness heavy, like three and a half pound Dungeness crab, and I sent it out all beautifully cracked and with lemon butter and everything else like that. And I go out and hey, and, hey Julia, how's it going? What do you think of the crab? And blah blah blah. Oh, the crab is lovely. She would say, "You do a better Julia than I do." Uh, the crab is lovely and so fresh and delicious. And then she she kind of put her index finger up and pulled me over, like to tell me a secret. And then she said, "Do you have any almonds, perhaps?" And so what she really wanted for her crab was some Hellman's mayonnaise. And I've never forgotten that uh, since. And I have uh, appreciate Hellman's, or in this area of the world, it's called Best Foods Mayonnaise, for what it is, rather than getting all snooty about uh, having to make your own. So the a question signal, on the table... Wait, 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 wait. The question on the table is, okay. in my mind, is it worth making your own mayonnaise? And secondly, I would probably argue myself that your homemade mayonnaise is just a different product than a commercial mayonnaise and has different attributes and different uses. So, Chef, I'm going to throw it to you now. Is it worth making your own homemade mayonnaise, and does it exclude store-bought mayonnaise? So in the double question, the answer is yes, it is very much worth making your own mayonnaise, but the other answer is definitely keep a jar of mayo in your refrigerator at all time because you're not going to always want to make mayonnaise from scratch. It's just a little bit of work. It's like making dressing. I mean, people buy dressing in a store for crying out loud. I've been screaming at that for years. But do you know how simple it can be to make a dressing? Just learn a few tricks, and then you'll be in in no time. I know how simple it is, but I I also know how simple it is to open a jar of pre-made dressing. Yeah, but the difference in taste, there is no way in the world. I I can guarantee you, you can make it better by hand on the spot. Very simply done, in just a few minutes, you can okay. make a delicious dressing. All right, and all right, all right. Let's go back to mayonnaise for the week. Let's go back to mayonnaise. So mayonnaise, mayonnaise is the same thing. You should make it. And the good thing about a real homemade mayonnaise, which is the same as what you have in the jar, in terms of uh, you can use that as a base to do all kinds of different things from. But when I was a child, when we would have a plateau de fruit mer, which is basically uh, you get sea snails, you get the shrimp, you get the or langoustine in France, and we would have all kind of different cold crab, you know, all that on the platter. The number one big bowl in the middle is homemade mayonnaise. Mm-hmm. Okay, That's let's, let's uh, tell, tell people how your go-to recipe for making homemade mayonnaise, the, you know, the simple way. So making a very simple mayonnaise is one egg yolk in a bowl. You break it down. You had two tablespoons of mustard, Dijon mustard. You whisk this whole thing together very nice and well incorporated. And then you drip in very slowly um, just a vegetable oil and um, let's say two-thirds vegetable oil, one-third olive oil. Um, and for one egg yolk, I would say no more than a three-quarter of a cup of oil. So you what don't you use any do lemon juice? You, you don't use any acid or anything? At the end. At the end, I put the vinegar or the lemon juice. Always at the end because it, uh, if you put it at the beginning, it hurts the emulsification. It doesn't emulsify quite as well. So you put it at the end. Um, but what I was going to say is the secret of a good mayonnaise is it should be hard. Like when you're done, it should be like 
a flan. It should be like right. a, a texture that is hard, not liquid, not a dressing. You could turn the jar and, upside down and it wouldn't come out. Correct. And that's mainly because when you were whisking your oil into your egg yolk mustard mixture, you were whisking a lot and you were pouring very, very, very slowly. You know, it's not a constant drip. It's not a big gulp. It's a little dripping very slowly and make sure, especially at the beginning, then the emulsification takes time and takes in so you have a very solid uh, mayonnaise. And then from that, once you get the mayonnaise at the end, you pour in either red wine vinegar, which is traditional, or lemon juice, which is also traditional. You know, both of those acids are good. Not together, but, you know, one or the other. And then you can keep that in the fridge for at least a couple of weeks. You know, you can have that in your refrigerator. Now, don't take it in and out and in and out for hours at a time. Just take what you need and keep it in the refrigerator. The good thing about that is in this time of year, like, for example, we were talking about grilling Walla Wallas earlier. You could grill a bunch of Walla Wallas. You puree them. You add that to your cold, both products, add them together, and you have this wonderful mayonnaise, oniony kind of mixture that you can put on top of a roast pork or a piece of fish or uh, on a beautiful slice of bread and then make a sandwich from that. Mm. Sounds but so just delicious. just an idea of good idea. Oh, you know what, what else it would be good for? Grilled uh, or roasted asparagus. Mm. Yeah. You know what else it would be good for, Chef? Homemade ranch dressing. Just take one part mayonnaise, one part sour cream, one part buttermilk, and then add every herb you can think of, uh, and then you have homemade ranch dressing, and uh, so much better than... Very good, yeah. Extraordinary ranch dressing. Yeah, which my daughter would put on a slice of pizza. What? Yes. She is so gross that way. She learned it at college. You know, there's not much you learn at college, but that's one thing that stuck with her. Oh, uh, yeah. God. Why would you want to put ranch dressing on the pizza? In New York, upstate New York, uh, you buy a slice for a buck, and then you get you get it with a side of ranch, and you dip your pizza in a, in ranch dressing. And I'd be curious if any of our listeners are into that kind of gross fad. Uh, but uh, <laughs> we do get asked at Serious Pie for sides of ranch dressing. So I'm just no. saying, yeah. I blame it on my daughter. <laughs> Um, and it all goes back to her not choosing my f- preferred name for her new child. <laughs> Up next, Pamela is going to join in and uh, talk about the food in the news, where we find it, and how we help produce this show. On Cabo Radio, it's the Hot Stove Society show, 97.3 FM. By the way, I'm Tom Douglas, uh, Chef Terry Rotro, the chef in the chapeau. is over there in Madison Valley. Pamela, our producer, um, Pamela, you went down this path. Why? Because it, it seems like since you started uh, producing the show, you've been spending a lot more time online looking at topics and information behind them. And Really? I thought I was hiding that from you. No. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> You're rack- doing a bad job. <laughs> ra- racking my brain on subjects that would engage and entertain you two and our audience. I'm looking for inspiration, of course, from the New York Times on Wednesday. Mm-hmm. I always start there. But recently, I've become really excited about the newsletter that Beecher's Foundation puts out, The Chew. And I think people should sign up. Do you read it, Terry? Isn't it excellent? I read it. Yes. It just came a few days ago. Yep. And it is, uh, they call it Fresh Food News for Puget Sound and Beyond. And I love the way that they break it up. Food for Thought as one section, mostly about 
agricultural and food supply issues. And the second half is cooking and eating, where they get into recipes and ingredients. Mm -hmm. So that's completely inspiring. And I also just joined the Patreon support of Molly Baz. Do you guys remember her at Bon Appetit? She was one of the senior editors there and in the test kitchen and um, resigned in support of some other staff members that uh, weren't getting fair contracts, people of color. Mm-hmm. Uh, and now she has a her own site uh, and a recipe club. So you can just look lightly at the top, but if you pay you know $5 a month or something, you get more in-depth recipes. And she's inspirational. Huh. Interesting. What about you guys? What do you look at? Well, uh, I'm forced on some because they just show up in my inbox, and that's uh, very frustrating. Like the edible... Uh, pages come to my inbox Uh, i don't remember ever signing up for edible but uh they come all the time and i can't seem to get rid of them not that i hate edible i'm just uh, i don't like unsolicited things i will say i got some of the industry rags when it comes to food and news and stuff like that and they are the worst at giving your emails out for spam absolutely worst restaurant hospitality nation's restaurant news uh plate uh, a few of the industry uh rags uh, i just i keep trying to get rid of them off my my website but there must be five a day that i get chef uh, do you have a particular kind of you know the industry rags are one thing right because they they go into all sorts of subjects right. and it also right. uh, I, it also clearly identifies why restaurant workers get paid little money and have no uh, health insurance based on correct. the, the uh, attitudes of some of our industry uh, magazines um Right. which I don't want to really go into right now, but it's always been a problem for me. Uh, what, what do you watch? I, I, I read the Seattle Time. Um, I always read, the, obviously, the local food scene, food news, new restaurants, new food, whatever, whoever's cooking what. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, the New York Times. And then once I'm out of those two, there is, uh, we get, um, oh, my God, I just lost the name. What is, what is Momofuku's um, chef's? newsletter David, David Chang he has a, a newsletter that is really cool they those guys do some very serious research on whatever ingredients they're gonna pick mm-hmm. and it's very interesting to uh, Kathy usually starts what reading it and she'll go oh did you see this article on this or that and I'll be like no but it's always very interesting the the depth of research the research they do and um, uh, again I wish I could remember the name of the <laughs> What about Food 52? Awesome. You you like that site? Because it combines recipes and lifestyle. Mm -hmm. So obviously they're always trying to sell you something. Right. They have beautiful taste, I think, in kitchenware and housewares. But their recipes are excellent. Are they? I've had good, good execution luck with that. There's a little restaurant that a group, I think it's just one restaurant, and I like their, they used to come out with a quarterly kind of tome, a paperback tome, uh, called Canal Food. I don't uh, know it. Uh, and I've been getting oh. it for quite a few years. It used to always be, like I said, in, in a booklet. Now it's completely online. Uh, but I want to say they're out of Pennsylvania somewhere, and they do a nice job with food, and they have a dinner box series that they do once a week, uh, Sunday night supper, uh, super fun uh, when it comes to that. There are trashy sites <laughs> oh, we wouldn't look at those. Well, we? um, do you remember uh, we used to get, uh, Tina used to get a lot of subjects off of one that I'm trying to think of the name of. I should have done the research on it, but 
Uh, there are ones that are just out there more in the gossip world, which I try to avoid uh, for sure. Good. Yeah. I, uh, tend, my, I tend to look also at, uh, what a surprise, healthy-ish. Mm-hmm. It's the pivot that Bon Appetit has taken. Right. Uh, and great recipe inspiration. But last week I, I had to stop reading the article because it was about nude dinner parties. And you know I'm too shy. Yeah, well. Oh, yeah, I read that too. <laughs> Would you would you have that. a dinner party in the nude, Terry? Uh, no, because I like my food hot, and I I'd always drop food on me, so that would be not a good idea. Cooking bacon naked, I would I would I would definitely be afraid to hurt myself. <laughs> the aspect but, I liked about uh, the story was, you know, the connection to nature right. and appreciating right. all the senses. But I I just can't imagine it. Uh, yeah, I would. I can imagine being a voyeur, watching people just walk around trying to not hurt themselves. Hot plate, hot plate, hot pan, <laughs> coming oh through corner. Oh, I'm thinking of all the different thing that could possibly burn you. Oh, I know, and I guess I'm really thinking about it in the restaurant sense, where you're just always you're on the edge of disaster when it comes to hot food, hot stock, hot soup, and uh, to think about doing that in the oh natural. Sounds painful. To me. Yeah, exactly. Well, you guys don't need Sounds recipes like the rest of us, but and and we talked to our friends at All Recipes a couple of weeks ago. But if if you're looking for dinner inspiration, do you get it from the supermarket or do you type it in to some kind of search? Well, I'm always on Google in a search, and so uh, if I want to say uh, think about asparagus, I will. Uh, or if I'm writing a menu for a, p- a particular party and I'm thinking appetizers in spring, I, uh, that's how I kind of get started. And then it c- you kind of end up in different places that are interesting. Uh, and then sometimes I'll actually, if, uh, for example, I'm doing a class here and I need a, a asparagus soup recipe when, and I don't have a tested one, sometimes I'll use a recipe offline that I then put my own embellishments to just so that I know it's been tested I don't want to send it out uh, to anybody without it being tested. And, and uh, so we will try that. But it's just a much quicker way to go about getting to a place where I want to be. If, it's, if it sounds good to me as a base, uh, I never, without giving credit, I never use a recipe. I don't care whether it's a book or offline or whatever. But if I'm going to use somebody else's recipe without changing it, then I always give credit. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? I think that's important from a right. chef, chef right. no, of course. perspective. Yeah, I agree. I agree with that. I mean, using other people's recipe is good. Um, I'm a big fan of whenever I plan a menu, especially ahead of time, to go through. I usually write, sit down and write down all the vegetables that are available first on one side of the page, and then I write all the protein that I can think of that are in season right here, right now, and available. And that's usually how I start building up my menu. And I go, okay, so you know, I've got all these different protein here. What am I going to do first? What am I going to do last? Mm-hmm. And then, then build the menu around the vegetable that goes with it, and then get you know the the the, the combination of the two. How does it come together, spice wise, and so on and so forth? But usually, it's just plain old laying down what's in season right now. So, yeah. you know, if you just start a list of all the things you've seen on the market, and then you pick. Exactly, and I know that you know sometimes I'm asked to do a menu uh, in March for a a party like a catering that we've got planned for November 15th. Right. And so you, you're just right, not in right, the, right. your head is not in the right place. And so the, the internet's right. a good inspiration to kind of think, okay, what's in fall. I remember now butternut squash. 
Uh, up next, Andy Elmore is here. She's quite a kick, as you know, if you've listened to her on the show before. And she's going to talk about the flavors of grilling Southeast Asian style. On Cairo Radio, it's the Hot Stove Society Show, 97.3 FM. We're back. It's time for Annie Elmore here in the Hot Stove Society studio. Uh, we are going to talk a little bit of Southeast Asian grilling with Annie Elmore. She is a presenter here at the Hot Stove and kind of runs the kitchen a bit. Uh, Chef in the Chapeau, welcome back from Madison Valley. Thank you. I'm still here and I'm still loving it. Still loving it's it. It's beautiful and sunny over here. <laughs> That's funny because it's not over here. Uh, I'm Tom <laughs> Douglas, uh, chef owner of a couple of restaurants here in town, including the Serious takeout out in Ballard, 52nd and 14th Northwest. And, of course, uh, downtown Serious Pie and Seatown Restaurant, which has been doing, you know, we've been getting lots and lots of raves about our fish and chips. I'm very proud of them. Uh, and then also, oh. you know, what people have really fallen in love with, you know, Terry, who knew that COVID was going to make me the tater tot king? Woo-hoo. Wow. Are they really digging those? Yeah, they are. And, you know, we switched to tater tots because uh, – when during the winter when we were open, by the time I got French fries out to the table, they were cold. Uh, and, you know, the right. little thin, wispy French fries. And the tater tots are like molten lava bombs. They never cool off. <laughs> they're hot. <for, laughs> I don't care. It could be 20 degrees outside, and they're like, oh, my God, those are so hot. So, uh, yeah. So, That's cool. Anyway. anyway, we've invited Annie on because uh, grilling season is uh, getting hot and heavy. And uh, one of my favorite ways to grill is using some of the kind of lemongrass, ginger, Southeast Asian kind of ingredients. And who's better to talk to about that than Annie Elmore? Hi, Annie. Hi, Tom. How are you? Super fantastic. Tell us about what you're going to make today. Um, So we're going to start off with the grilling class over at the Ballard Warehouse in person but outdoor uh, to keep it a little bit easier to maintain people. Uh, the class is going to be about um, Pacific uh, Islander versus Southeast Asian. The Pacific Islander part is going to be from um, Eric, which is one of our pastry cooks here. He's Filipino. And him and I going to kind of battle on the grill between the two different flavors that we are feeding people with. I'm going to do mine with a little bit more of garlicky and lemongrass, like Tom said, and lots of chili. Um, but for Filipinos, they don't do a lot of chili unless if you're from the south side. You're closer to Indonesian area. Mm-hmm. Then it's a little bit spicier. But other than that, uh, it's citrusy, salty, and sweet is what they're going for. Um, but the condiments are always very, very acidic, a lot of vinegar. And for us, our condiments is a lot more of a sweet and salty and sour. Um, so it's kind of a little contrast uh, in a way of how we serve our meat and how what we serve it with. Interesting. And your background is okay. kind of interesting, Annie. Uh, you were... I, I, you tell us. I don't want to guess because I remember you saying that okay. you were you were one ethnicity, but you grew up in a different kind of household. Yes. Uh, so I I was born in Cambodia. Um, my mom is half Cambodian, half Chinese. My dad is full Vietnamese. I even have a Cambodian name because uh, pretty much six years of my life, my first six years of my life, I knew it was Cambodia. And uh, my Cambodian name is called Dara. And my Vietnamese name is Andao. And, um, but I grew up as a 
Cambodian. And then when we moved to Vietnam, um, I grew up as a Vietnamese, but really, really growing up through my adulthood, um, we were living as a Vietnamese family. So, but I do eat a lot of different food. My mom still celebrate Cambodian New Year's. We still celebrate Chinese New Year. Um, so it's abundant of everything. So when you talk about Southeast Asian grilling, sorry, Terry, uh, uh, so do you, you kind of marry the Cambodian Vietnamese side of that? Yes. So I'm going to grill my meat, like how Cambodian grill the meat, but I'm going to use the Vietnamese sauce and Vietnamese pickles to go with it. Um, I just, I just, I just love the idea that you have three new years in one year. I think that's a very cool thing. (laughs) Yeah. That's very cool. And the the flavor. Mm. Yeah. The the flavor, I mean, yeah, I'm here. Uh, So the flavor, you know, for Vietnam, depending on where you're at, north or south, it's completely different taste. Um, You know, up north, it's a little bit more bland, a lot more salty, and a lot more garlicky. Down south, it's a lot more colorful flavors like you get the acidic you get the sweet you got the spiciness you get a lot of herbs north is a little bit bland kind of boring in a way uh not saying that my dad was flavor um palate is bland or he was kind of bland but he married to my mom thank god his palate got a little bit better okay Andy, i'm gonna they- st- i'm gonna stop you there for one second because we have i want to get a recipe in so um uh-huh. uh <laughs> Uh, if you had if you had a nice little pack of uh, chicken thighs from the grocery store, uh, how would you make uh, a chicken a grilled chicken thigh dinner tonight? What, what kind of uh, spice paste would you put on the meat? How long would you let it marinate? How would what hot, height of temperature would you use on the grill? Kind of walk us through uh, what you would put on your dinner table. So with the chicken, I usually always in my freezer. I have this already pre-chopped frozen lemongrass that have chili, Thai chili in it too, I would use, let's just say, one pound of um, chicken thighs, probably two thighs, um, about maybe two tablespoons of lemongrass. If you want it spicier, use um, the chili flakes. A little bit, depending on your spice level, one through five, either you are wimp or, you know, brave. Uh, and then, of course, garlic. I would do a little bit of fish sauce, sugar, a uh, little bit of oil, a um, little bit of salt, and let that marinate it for not even long, 30 minutes is longer than you need. And then uh, just let it sit in Ziploc bag, rub it real well. And then the grill, I would use a hot side grill. And I also like mine with skin off skin on because the skin is the best part use it on the hot side get it nice you know that diamond shape then move it to the colder side and i would grill that for probably between 12 to 17 minutes depending on the size of your thighs Mm -hmm. um overall if you really want to speed it up then put a cast iron skillet on top of it they call it that brick chicken almost you can speed it up that's kind of like a cook trick when you get something fire and then you forgot to put it on, that's what you do. You put a, hot, and, yeah, a little uh, heavy pan on top. and, and yeah, uh, yeah. You, you don't want to do that with chicken breasts. Uh, chicken thighs are fine because no. uh, they're, yeah. they're juicy enough, but yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, so it's like 15, I would say between 15 to 17 minutes, take it off and let it 
sit there maybe like five minutes to cool it off and it will carry the temperature over. I will cook a pot of rice before you put your meat on. Let it sit there. Make a nice cucumber salad with a little bit of lime juice, sugar, um, you know, a little bit of water just to thin it out a little bit. Some chili, lots of herbs. That can be your side salad. Go with your rice and your chicken. That should take quite 15, no, like 30 to 45 minutes between the marinating the meat to cooking it. That's your dinner right there. Mm. And do you serve with like a, a nok chom uh, for your chicken or do you just put it directly right on the rice and you're done? Oh, I mean, like if you marinated the chicken so well with all the, you know, with all the, the spices and the meat and stuff like that. And then when you let it sit there, some of the juice from the meat will leak out from the marinade. Just use that juice and drizzle on your rice. That's your sauce right there. But you have to cook it, right? Mm. Did you say that? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. And, you know, like when you take it off the grill and you let it sit, usually meat would always leak out some juice when you okay. let it sit. All right. Yeah. Right. All right. I thought you were saying take the ma- the raw marinade oh, and use no. it. No. Come on. No. I know. I know. We're not trying to kill people here. We're trying to educate people. We're trying to execute people. Pamela, um, <laughs> when is Annie's class? Or Annie, when is your class? Uh, it's going to be the 18th of June, the day before Father's Day. We're trying to do that to kind of encourage um, if you're a good son or daughter, you would buy this pot for your father so you can come and, you know, and, and let your father enjoy a gr- nice grilling class with some cocktails. There you go. I love that. Way to go. <laughs> good. Uh, uh, Pamela, uh, I know I have a steak grilling class also uh, out at the warehouse. Yes, uh, you do. When is that? Well, well, the 11th sold out, so we added a second class on Thursday the 24th. Okay, so if you want more information on uh, Annie's class or my class, uh, let's go to hotstovesociety.com, and you can find out or get a ticket or whatever it is that you want to do. I know I'm grilling some. I'm doing the big test, Terry. I'm doing the gas fire grill next to the charcoal fire grill. And is, oh, it, wow. is it worth it? That's what I'm doing on my class. Annie, so. what do, uh, wow. heat source are you using? Oh, charcoal all the way. Charcoal, charcoal all the way. Okay, yeah. Way yeah. to go, Annie. I knew Tom I liked you. <laughs> so we'll see. We'll see if Tom, uh, Tom's barbecue is going to be better than mine. We'll see about that. We'll so it's going to be like we'll eat see. meat west. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> or, yeah. Boy, there's something about Annie that just brings out my evil side. <laughs> uh, up next, Tom and Terry are going to get uh, creative with the new recipes for uses of two of our rubs on Cairo Radio it's a Hot Stove Society show, 97.3 FM. And we're back. It's the Hot Stove Society show. We're having fun torturing our producer, Pamela Hinckley, who thought that maybe the tasty trivia part of our show this week was a little tired and needed a revamp. So she's taking a week off. She's on strike. And we're going to jump in uh, with a little different segment today. Uh, my name is Tom Douglas. And I'm Thierry Rotirola, Chef in the Hat. And Chef, as you know, I'm the proud uh, proprietor of the Rub with Love Spice Rub line. Uh, which, you uh, should be proud. Yeah, it was, it's good, and it sells really well. And you know, one of the things that uh, I think Pamela wanted to make note of here is that a, a rub, especially ours, ours come with a recipe on top. When I first started doing these rubs 23 years ago, uh, people didn't know what to do with them. They were more of a, rubs were more of a southern barbecue thing. And uh, I really liked the idea. So I started making different flavor profiles. And one way to sell them then was to actually put a recipe on each jar uh, and to show how to use the rub. But 
an unintended consequence was that sometimes people think that's the only way to use the rub, right? Uh, uh, for example, right. on my Bengal masala rub, I have a lamb chop recipe. And some people think, well, I don't eat lamb, so I'm not going to buy this rub. And so we've, been, we've dealt with that over the years in lots of different ways. But um, what we like to tell people is that if you're thinking about making kind of an Indian dinner tonight or, or uh, East Indian dinner tonight, uh, think about using this flavor profile, whether it's on cauliflower, whether it's on lamb chops, or whether it's on chickpeas. You know, it doesn't really, right. it doesn't really matter. It's more about the flavor profile. And that's the same way with all of our rubs. So, Pamela, tell us why you picked these two rubs today and, and what you want Chef Terry and I to accomplish. They're two of the uh, least understood in our line, but I think two of the most incredibly versatile. So the Bengal masala, we, the recipe we have on it suggests that you use it for lamb um, because the flavors in it, cardamom, cumin, mustard, turmeric, chives, chili peppers, and brown sugar are incredibly versatile. Mm-hmm. And you brought up Indian cuisine, so my mind goes there. But uh, what what would you guys do with it? Chef Terry, you want to go first? Um, yeah, the first thing I'm thinking of is to do a nice potato pancake. You know, a lot of people make potato cakes in the morning for breakfast. Not pancake, cake, sorry. Like um, a shredded and, potato uh, pancake? You know, is that what you're saying? Yeah, shredded yeah. potato pancake. I would definitely love to have that spice in mixed with my potatoes before I cook my cake. Mm -hmm. Because I think that would bring out a beautiful flavor on that. And if you did that, then you would go out to your garden and you would pick a little fresh herb salad of what to kind of put a little herb salad on top of your crispy potato cake? Well, right now I've got um, arugula, mazuna, and um, uh, red leaf lettuce. So I would just do a little bit of a bunch of everything. And I have fresh tarragon, which I think would be a good addition to that. Mm Mm-hmm. You know, and just put a little bit of that in together and then make a nice little salad to go with it. It would be delicious. Yeah, I love that idea so, when you add crispy, uh, like a crispy potato cake with a fresh uh, fine herb salad or a nice leafy, yeah. uh, not, not like a romaine Caesar salad, right? Uh, but we're talking really fine right. red rib sorrel or, you know, a nice fine herb salad. And when you use yeah. arugula, it's not like it's a big toss salad, right? So. No, no, of course. Would you make that, Pamela? No, I mean, Does that solve your issue there? Yes, or what I often use it for is a rice and lentil combination mm-hmm. with a, a rich mm. chicken stock because I think it needs the chicken backbone, mostly to help the lentils. <laughs> <laughs> lentils need help. The only real lentils that I actually could say that I love or I like uh, a lot are the beluga lentils. Is those that are, the, the those tiny are little black French, one? Uh, the puy, right? Isn't yeah. that the chef? Yeah, it's lentil du puy. Yeah. But they're a little bit different. But lentil du puy are green lentils. Yeah, those are delicious mm-hmm. for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, another thing for the, I'm thinking of what I have in my fridge right now. I have, a, not on the fridge, but on the counter, I have a, a pineapple. Um, I've been going on this pineapple rant you lately. Have, you've been on a uh, pineapple run. <laughs> well, the Met Market has been having some fabulous uh, pineapple and from Costa Rica, then I'm like, dang. I mean, I'm going to get one delicious today. And it's, good for, and it's good for you too, by the way. Lots of great stuff in there. But anyway, I would do a nice little uh, kind of like a chutney of, of, um, of um, pineapple with uh, onions, uh, garlic, and then use all that rub in there um, at the last minute of cooking where you dice your pineapple, you put the whole thing together and you cook it slowly. And then at the last minute, 
couple of minutes before the end, I would toss in my, my rub in there, the, the Bengali um, rub, and then put it in there and then give it all that flavor added to that chutney. And I think that'd be a great combination for many different things, all the way from obviously cooking some Indian dish all the way to a garnish to a cheese plate. I mean, you could use all that, you know, just to be, uh, you know, cold. You could have the the pineapple uh, chutney to be uh, served room temp next to a cheese plate. Right. On the- but anyway, the, the point is that the flavor is really, really, it's very diversified in terms of the base is telling you, kind of reminding you of Indian cuisine because of the cardamom, the cumin, you know, the turmeric, the mustard, all that is reminding you of a, a certain type of cuisine, but it's not blocked onto lamb chop for sure. For sure. Yeah. I mean, definitely very diversified here. On the peri-peri rub, uh, our, our recipe on the label says peri-peri roast chicken, and it is a delicious way, but sometimes people forget on roast chicken. That means a lot of things. So let's just keep it on chicken for a minute, and let's do – I know Pamela loves a spatchcock. Uh, so where you take the backbone out of the chicken and you kind of – butterfly it open and you break the breastbone but then you put it say into a cast iron pan with some a good amount of bacon fat or duck fat or chicken schmaltz or uh, sometimes i'll pull the fat out of the cavity of the chicken and render that first and then cook the chicken in the chicken fat uh right put it uh, in your cast iron pan and then put another heavy pan on top so you really once you get the spice rub on there you really get a nice crusty finish on the spice rub so that's a something where it just says roast chicken in the oven is very different than a spatchcock chicken in a cast iron pan absolutely and do you take the time to get the seasoning under the skin or are you just rubbing on top if i'm roasting like a whole bird in the oven then i'll go ahead and, and mix some rub into my butter and then put it under the skin just like i would on my turkey rub or for you know for thanksgiving but if i am going to do spatchcock where Literally, I'm cooking in the fat and kind of frying the skin. Then I, I don't think that's a necessary step. So uh, on the uh, on the peri peri, I would use it into a rolling into a pasta. So if you're making sheets of pasta, homemade pasta, you just put the peri peri in it, and then you cook your pasta just like that and toss them around, and it's got that gorgeous kind of like lemony, kind of spicy flavor mm-hmm. that gets attached to the pasta. So it's a great garnish to. Um, you know, you can do mushroom with that, sauteed mushroom. You can do vegetables and maybe a poached egg on top with that pasta. And that that's just a very beautiful flavor in the background, especially because it's been blanched. So it's not in your face like entirely, but it's got that beautiful uh, background flavor that's added to the pasta. I think it's delicious. And when you do that in your pasta, you simply add it right when you're adding your eggs and your flour together, right? Yeah. It's, it goes right yeah, in yeah, at yeah. the very beginning. and. It, uh, it yep. looks pretty, and uh, because of the red paprika in there, your pasta turns a little bit reddish, and I think it's a, it's a yep. beautiful presentation. So, And all the lively peppers that are mm-hmm. in the peri-peri mm-hmm. would just make that yeah. pasta pop. Don't forget, we're brought to you by Rub With Love, small batch, versatile rubs, sauces, and mustards that bring an extra layer of flavor to just about any meal. Look for them at your local grocery store and or specialty shops or find them online at tom douglas or my buddy stan or amazon or you name it today our prize winner is Lori dragseth she's going to get a little gift pack of peri peri and bengal masala rub if you want to be part of the show you can join the community on facebook live at hot stove society radio show you're listening to hot stove on cairo uh, as we've been telling you 
for years we're on this station. <laughs> the show is produced by Pamela Hinckley. Sean McFadden is our technical director. And Sean, um, don't call me Del Torre, is our editor. And remember, if you miss any episode of our Hot Stove Society show on Cairo, you can uh, listen via podcast. Just subscribe using your favorite podcast app. Have a wonderful weekend. Happy Memorial Day.